0: Quick disclaimer, in the second story today, there's a fairly prominent instance of self-harm. Please see the post on MythPodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, there are two literary fairy tales from Oscar Wilde. You'll see how confidence can be a good thing. Just don't overdo it, or else you'll find yourself in a mud puddle arguing with ducks. And the creature this week is a well-dressed grim reaper who lives in a middle management nightmare. This is Myths and Legends, episode 278, Sky Rockets in Flight. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two literary fairy tales by Irish poet, playwright, and writer, Oscar Wilde. Known for his wit and his excellent writing, he's probably best known today for The Picture of Dorian Gray, his novel, The Importance of Being Earnest, his plays, and several of his poems. But he also wrote a collection of literary fairy tales. And today, we're going to be jumping in with a wedding between a prince and a princess, something that's not uncommon in fairy tales, but we'll meet some unexpected guests. You, milady, are even more beautiful than your picture, the prince said to the princess, kneeling down and kissing her hand. The picture wasn't a photo, it was just some, like, drawing that a guy did at court one day. Still, the prince was super into it when I guess the yearbook made the rounds that year. He chose her, and it was love at first sight for both of them. They knew because his dad had an enchanted crystal goblet that, when two people drank from it, you could tell if they were in love or not. The young couple drank from it at the ceremony and the crystal didn't cloud and become murky. The king clapped his hands. He could see that their love was crystal clear. Everyone laughed a long time at this very funny joke said by the man who could have them executed for not laughing. Then, flute solo... The story says that the king knew two songs and which one he would play or was playing at any given moment was a mystery even to him. He tutored along on a five-minute flute solo to celebrate his son's wedding to the princess and bowed to thunderous applause. He smiled, wiping the sweat from his forehead. The king was feeling good. The king collared his page boy, you there, your pay doubled, (laughs) you're welcome. The boy said the king had enslaved his people. He wasn't paid? Even better, everyone's pay is doubled. A very enthusiastic, yay, Yay. went up from the, to put it in Thor Ragnarok parlance, prisoners with jobs, when they saw the king was expecting some response for his graciousness. The wedding party continued. The princess yawned, but her new husband said she couldn't be tired. They had to stay up for the fireworks. She said this was the early modern period. Fire and work are both super annoying and kind of deadly things. Why should she stay up for that? The king was listening in. He said no. This was like the Aurora Borealis, but better. And they could do it on cue. You know those stars up in the sky that people are always wishing on and junk? Complete trash compared to fireworks. They were comparable to his own flute playing. That good, Huh? The princess grimaced. You know, I am so glad I traveled in my youth, the squib, the small firework, said to the others as they bumped along in the cart. I've seen the world. Travel improves the mind wonderfully and does away with all one's prejudices. The castle pyrotechnic had carried the squib from the workshop outside the wall to the height of the palace gardens the extent of what it believed to be the world, so yeah, he was pretty well-traveled, you fool, you complete knave, that's not the world, that's just the castle, the world is like four times bigger than that, talking about the world, the Roman candle growled, any place you love is the world to you, a Catherine wheel said, and they were off talking about love, and poets, and how poets ruin love, because they wrote about it so much, they kind of ruined the topic for everyone, a firecracker called things to order. In the bickering about whether love was dead, Rocket cleared his throat. throat) Rocket contributed to the conversation by discussing the only topic he really cared about, himself. It is fortunate for the prince that he is to be married on the same day I am to be let off. Couldn't have worked out better for him, Rocket said after he cleared his throat, despite not having a throat or lungs. The other fireworks in the cart looked at him, Okay, I didn't really see how that related to the conversation they were having, but they all said it was the other way around. They were being let off in honor of the prince's wedding. I mean, (laughs) maybe for you all, Rocket smirked. But no, no, I am the remarkable Rocket. For I come from remarkable parents. They were marvels of pyrotechnic art. It, it's pyrotechnic. The Bengal light. Another firework chimed in. Not to be that firework, but it is literally written on all of our canisters, even yours. Will I say pylotechnic? It is the cultured way to say it, the rocket sneered. The mangle light, chastened in front of the group, turned and started bullying the little squibs, as the story says, to show that he was still a firework of some importance. As I was saying, uh, what was I saying? The rocket wondered. You were talking about yourself, again the Roman candle chimed in. He and the firecracker chuckled. What are you laughing about? Rocket demanded. The two said they were laughing because they were happy. Don't worry about it. What right do you have to be happy? Rocket spat. You should be thinking of others. You should be thinking of me. I'm always thinking of myself and everyone should do the same. It's called empathy. Might want to try it. Like, I would feel so bad for the prince if I didn't go off tonight. His marriage would be spoiled. The princess would leave him. No one would get over it. Really, when I think about how important I am, I'm moved to tears. Tears. Well, I mean, you better not be moved to tears, though, the Roman candle noted, because you have to stay dry. Because you're a firework. Says who? Rocket couldn't believe all the back talk he was getting today. Uh, that says common sense, fire needs dry fuel. Rocket explained that they forget that he wasn't a common rocket. Any common thing could have common sense, provided that they had no imagination. (laughs) The only thing that kept him sane was the knowledge of the inferiority of others. It's something that always helped him through the hard times. But he would weep if he chose to, and he would go off just fine. "No, No, no, you really won't, the fire balloon chimed in. Rocket said he would show them. He said that what if the prince and princess had a beautiful son and they moved someplace by a river and the child went in the river and he died. He was their only son. He was just a boy. So many years before him, so many lost possibilities, just gone in the river. There it is. The tears began to flow down the rocket. The other rockets rolled away as best they could. First, thanks for killing the vibe, They were all having a good time at the wedding party before he started wailing over a non-existent dead child. Second, he really wouldn't be able to go off if he was soaked. The wedding party emerged from the palace into the courtyard. It was time. The fireworks lived with a singular purpose, to go off in a show of beauty and grace. First, the Catherine wheel spinning in the sky. Then, the Roman candle boomed. The squibs danced. The fire balloon cried goodbye to all their friends and dropped blue sparks. The firecrackers popped and sang as they fulfilled their purpose. Finally, it was Rocket's turn. Hey, why is this one wet? The servant called out. The castle pyrotechnic shrugged. He didn't know. Try it anyway. After a few false starts, the Rocket remained unlit. He was put back in the cart. He looked around. (laughs) The rubes. Turned out not even the prince's wedding was a worthy event for the remarkable rocket. We'll see what is a worthy event for the remarkable rocket, but that will be right after this. The chill of the morning found two servants cleaning up the courtyard. The wedding guests had strewn glasses and trash throughout the place. The pyrotechnic had joined the party as soon as the work was done, so the cart still sat out in the open. What's this? One servant asked, holding up the remarkable rocket. Oh yeah, the pyrotechnic said that it's just a bad rocket. We can just pitch it. The first servant shrugged, nodded, and tossed it over the wall. Done. Don't you think we should like dispose of that safely or something what if someone what if like a kid finds it and burns down half of the city the servant followed the path of the rocket over the wall with his eyes <laughs> not my city besides we're not paid enough to dispose of stuff safely and all that we're not paid at all the other servant noted exactly the first replied and they continued their work meanwhile the remarkable rocket bounced in the field outside Bad rocket? What did that mean? Well, I mean, he knew what that meant. It was an indisputable fact that he was amazing, so it must be one of those things where people say bad stuff is good. The rocket chuckled to himself. Yes, he understood the slang of the youths. He was bad. I mean, he wasn't exactly sure why he was in this field, though. He rolled to a stop in a muddy puddle. The rocket said mud. It was like a spa. That's why he was out here relax for his grandest event. He didn't know what that was, but he would. What up? He heard a croak from his left. The rocket rolled to see a frog. Mud puddle, nice, love it. I was hoping for some rain today, but looks like a clear sky, bummer. Oh well, at least we got to the mud puddle early, right bro? The remarkable rocket cleared his throat, what usually stopped the conversation with his other fireworks not so much with the frog. Oh, you got a solid croak going there, bro, he said. He should stop by and check out the glee club tonight. All the frogs got together by the duck pond over by the farmer's place. Start singing when the moon rises. It was good stuff. Heard the farmer's wife saying how she stayed up all night because of our croaking. Such a huge compliment. Remarkable Rocket cleared his throat again. I right, well, I'm out. My daughters are swimming in the pond and that pike, man, he is always trying to eat them. I probably shouldn't let them swim there alone, but I'm also a frog, so what am I going to do? Anywho, good talk, the frog said, slapping the rocket on uh, where he thought the rocket's back would be. Good talk, you did all the talking. I could barely get in a word edgewise, the rocket said. Frog said this was a conversation. Someone has to talk, someone has to listen, and he likes to talk. Worked out this time. Prevents arguments. But I love to argue, the rocket said. Ew. Arguing is vulgar, the frog grimaced. Everyone knows all the smart people of a certain level of society have the same opinions about everything. He was out. He needed to go pick up his daughters. You are so irritating, the rocket barked. It was rude when people only wanted to talk about themselves, when someone wants to talk about themselves as I do. You should learn from my example. I am a great being. Yesterday, the prince and the princess were married in my honor. Of course, you know nothing of these matters. Provincial. Yeah, he's gone, the rocket heard. He left, like, the minute you started talking, a dragonfly noted. Well, that is his loss, not mine, answered the rocket. I'm not going to stop talking to him merely because he pays no attention or isn't there. I like hearing myself talk. It's one of my greatest pleasures. I often have long conversations all by myself, and I'm so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I'm saying. You should be a philosophy professor then, the dragonfly replied because they definitely would know what both of those things were, and wasn't just a cheap dig on the part of the author. She didn't have time for this, and flew off. Rocket said he basically was like he hadn't paid attention in rocket school, but he watched a lot of YouTube videos and was pretty smart. It was really Dragonfly's loss for not wanting to improve her mind. He sunk deeper into the mud. Quack, quack, a nearby duck quacked. Why do you look like that? Were you born like that, or in some sort of horrible accident. The rocket said, "'What, what did the duck mean by that?' Ugh. It was obvious that she had always lived in the country, otherwise she should know who he was. He excused her ignorance. She would be surprised to know that he could fly up in the sky and come down in a golden shower. The duck grimaced, "'Uh, no offense, but what use was that to anyone ever?' He couldn't pull a cart, plow the fields, look after sheep.' Rocket laughed at such a foolish question. Use. What use? Oh, dear girl. She truly did come from the lower orders, as the story says. People of his position were never useful. We have accomplishments, but we don't work. He had no interest in any type of work, least of all those horrible things she mentioned. Hard work is simply the refuge of people who have nothing better to do. The duck said that that tracked with every working person's experience ever, sure. Was the Rocket staying here, then, among the provincials? Rocket said no. There was no culture here in the suburbs. He was destined to make his sensation in the world yet, it seemed. Cool. I'm hungry. I'm gonna go, the duck said, and paddled off under the water. Rocket tried to yell out to her, to say that he still had so much more to say. But she, in her decidedly middle-class mind, as the story calls her, weren't good enough company for him anyway. Ah, the loneliness of genius. So my main concern when tossing explosives haphazardly over the city walls is that kids would find them and light them. And that's exactly what happened. Oh, look at this old stick. One of two kids who approached remarked. Rocket shook his head. That's probably an accent he didn't understand. Must have meant gold stick. And the children did think that the rocket was a stick and not an explosive. They were looking for something to get their fire going. They picked up the rocket and tossed it in with their bundle of sticks and then lit the sticks on fire. Rocket was brimming with excitement. This was his time. To be let off in broad daylight, that was so rare for a firework. He would take the world by surprise. Everyone would be aware of him. The boys were boiling a kettle with sticks and an explosive, so they decided to take a nap. The kettle would wake them up when it was boiling. Since the rocket was so damp, the fire was roaring before it even started to singe his fuse. He began to shake with excitement. This was it. This was his chance. His whole life had been leading up to this point. When he went up, he would be the only thing the city talked about for a year. He would set the whole world on fire, figuratively, and... Maybe literally, too. Who knows? This was his glorious calling. It was time. The fuse disappeared. He started to rumble. Then he exploded. A shower of sparks exploded behind him as he flew up into the sky. He was going off. This was magnificent. He would go higher than the stars, than the moon, than even the sun. His end fizzed. This was amazing, delightful. People would be talking about him for years. He was going to live forever. He exploded in blue-white. It would have been the biggest, grandest explosion of the night before, and it would have been magnificent if anyone had seen it, or even could have. The kids were sleeping, the animals all had their own stuff going on, and they were well outside the city walls at this point. The only thing left of the rocket was the stick he had been tied to. The last of the remarkable rocket, the ember that floated to the ground, watched as the stick fell next to a goose. They honked. Sticks! It was raining sticks! They dove into the water and paddled away as quickly as possible. The remarkable rocket, or what was left of it, sighed to himself. I knew I would make a great sensation. Then, he went out. The end of this story immediately made me think of the feeling I get when someone writes in telling how the podcast affected them emotionally and what it means to them. The fact that we could have a positive impact on even just one person means the world to us. That being said, I don't think the one person as a stand-in for the world is the meaning of the end of the story. Like with anything Oscar Wilde writes, there are so many interesting layers and so much to dive into. I definitely see the frustrations of living with a class-focused 19th century British society, where things like lands and titles and the family that you were born into matter immensely. So much so that people could probably confidently spout off nonsense, and others would not only let them get away with it, but applaud them and think less of themselves. Personally, I read this story as one about personal growth. Sometimes, stories are about personal growth, achieved through experience, adversity, effort, any number of things. Sometimes, though, people are like the remarkable rocket. They don't change, no matter how many chances they get. They live a life steeped in their own delusions, doing the same harmful things day after day, year after year, until the inevitable happens. Life isn't a story. It isn't a novel. Sometimes, there isn't character progression. Sometimes, there's nothing forcing someone to grow, and they can remain the exact same person they are until they die. I guess my personal takeaway from this story is, you are in the driver's seat of your own life. You can hit the pause button right now and stay there forever, but there's more to life than that. And only you can find out what that is. We'll be back right after this break. "'What's his deal?' the lizard said to the nightingale, as they both sat by the scholar's window. The scholar had taken his desk full of books and swept them to the floor. He was weeping. "'A red rose, a red rose.' He's uh, weeping for a red rose. (sighs) "'He needs one to be able to court the girl he loves, the daughter of a professor. She won't dance with him unless he presents her with a red rose,' the nightingale said, choking back tears herself. Metaphorical tears, though. Nightingales don't have tear ducts. Well, that's stupid, the lizard said, and went back to munching on a bug. How dare you say that? The nightingale's sorrow turned to ire. You just don't understand love. You could never understand. The lizard said yes. Both of those things were true. He was a lizard, and his brain literally did not give him the ability to love. But from the look of both of them, the nightingale and the scholar, He didn't appear to be missing out, looked miserable. The nightingale said she, she didn't, she just appreciated the fact that he was such a romantic, articulate, dashing youth. And his tousled dark hair, his eyes that you could get lost in. Oh my, oh no, she was in love with a human. The lizard laughed at her as she flapped off in a panic. The nightingale flapped through the garden. How had this happened? Had this ever happened before? She was in love with a human, it was true. And when you love someone, you want what's best for them. She knew that he could never love her a bird, but he did love another. It would hurt, but she wanted him to be happy. She would find him a red rose. "'Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm all out,' the rosebush said to the nightingale. "'The winter has chilled my veins, frost has nipped my buds, "'and storms have broken my branches. "'I will have no roses this year. "'I only need one red rose, one red rose for my love. "'Is there no way to get one? "'She would do anything. "'Was there no way to get one?' "'The rosebush said that there was one way, "'but it was pretty horrible. "'Tell it to me, I am not afraid.' The Rosebush said she felt like she shouldn't, but, nah, whatever. Well, if you really wanted a red rose, someone has to stain it in their own heart's blood, and it had to be built out of music by moonlight. Like, blood would have to flow from some living thing's veins all the way into my veins, the Rosebush explained. Like I said, super messed up. There was a long pause. Okay, by your lack of reaction, I'm starting to think that you're not as put off by this as you should be. If it were you doing this, it would take all of your blood. It would kill you. So let's both agree that this is horrifying and get on with our lives, the rosebush said. Death. Death is the price for a red rose. Death is the price for... For love the nightingale swallowed hard, looking off into the distance toward the scholar's window. I enjoy the sunrise. Sweet is the scent of the hawthorn and bluebells that hide in the valley and heather that blows on the hill. Yet love is sweeter than all. The nightingale flew, once again, to the scholar's window before the rosebush could point out that this was still a terrible idea, one that she regretted saying. The tears hadn't yet dried on the beautiful eyes of the scholar when he looked over to the nightingale at his window. Be happy, cried the nightingale. Be happy. You shall have your red rose. I will build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with my own heart's blood. Live a wonderful, beautiful, full life in love, for it was love that gave you this gift. The bird then choked back a sob and flew away. The scholar cocked his head. That was weird. It was like that bird was talking to him. He didn't understand any of that, mainly because it was a bird. The story says that he could not understand it because he only knew things that were written down in books. He laid down on his little pallet bed and as the sun began to set, fell asleep thinking of his love, who was not a bird. The nightingale flew back toward the rosebush. Okay, I'm going to say this again. Please don't do this. The rosebush pleaded as the nightingale bared her feathery chest toward a thorn on a vine. Like, I know I can't stop you, but please, it is not worth this. He is just some human. I'm not doing this for the human. I'm doing this for love. Love is sweeter, stronger than death, the nightingale said, walking up until the point was right on her feathers. Yeah, I mean, love is stronger than death in the abstract, but you're literally gonna die for a kid who doesn't know you. This is just bad the rosebush cried. I will be able to rest, knowing I have given the one I love happiness, even if he doesn't know my name, she said, and pressed the thorn into her chest. She sang all night, and her song was sad and beautiful, hopeful and forlorn. The rosebush accepted her sacrifice and allowed the blood to flow into her. She didn't want her friend to die in vain. Hours passed. The sun began to paint the sky in the east. The rosebush sighed. Press closer, little nightingale, she said, or the day will come before the rose is finished. Goodbye, friend. The nightingale's song grew wild. Pain shot through her as she sang of love that dies not in the tomb. A single rose, the largest, bloomed and grew crimson with the light of the nightingale. She pressed farther into the thorn, until it found her heart. The nightingale looked on it with hope. Her song grew fainter, she had done it. The one she loved would be happy, able to live in love with the person he cherished. Her eyes closed for the last time, and she slid from the thorn, falling into the grass. When the student woke that morning, He looked out the window as he was getting ready. He spotted it, a red rose in the bush outside. He dressed in his best and almost fell down the stairs. He stood before the rose bush, marveling at his luck, not knowing the love or the sacrifice that had brought him to this moment. He knelt down, picked the flower, and rushed off toward the professor's house. You said you would dance with me tonight if I brought you a red rose, the scholar said, holding out the flower to the professor's daughter, who sat on her father's porch with her little dog lying at her feet. You will wear it tonight, next to your heart, and as we dance together, it will tell you how I love you. He smiled. He cleared his throat. She frowned. What... She looked to her feet. It's just the rose; it wouldn't go with her dress. Also, she wasn't a fan of the scholar telling her what she would do. How about asking? Before the scholar could reply, the woman said, "Also, and this is only somewhat related. The chamberlain's nephew had sent her some real, actual jewels, and and he was super cool and good looking, and ah." Uh, Things were getting kind of serious between them. The scholar sneered. Wow, you're ungrateful. She said, ungrateful? She was being as clear as she possibly could. She didn't like him in that way. The scholar's hand went to his chest like he had just been stabbed. She said she would dance with him tonight if he brought her a rose, and he brought her a rose, so she owed him a dance. So he could tell her how much he loved her. Oh, I don't owe you anything just because you brought me a flower? Please. Also we've talked like three times and you're in love with me? And I'm not supposed to be creeped out by that? She rose, looked him up and down with disgust, and walked inside. When the dog was in, she slammed the door in the student's face. The student shook his head. He couldn't believe it. Ungrateful. He looked down at the flower. The flower the nightingale? who had loved him had bled and died for and tossed it into the gutter. He didn't look back, but it was trampled by a cart. He was dumb with love. It wasn't as useful as facts. It doesn't tell you anything true, only making you believe what wasn't true. It was unpractical. He would never love again. He returned to his room, pulled out a great dusty book and began to read. So, do you like your love stories with crushing, brutal cynicism? Like in the first story, there's a lot to unpack here. Wilde wrote to a friend about the meaning of this tale, that, quote, "...the nightingale is the true lover, if there is one. She, at least, is romance, and the student and the girl are, like most of us, unworthy of romance." Which, yeah, makes the story somehow even sadder, because true love's sacrifice was ultimately pointless. True love does exist, according to the story, but most of us make it demanding and transactional rather than selfless. Wilde goes on to say that there are many possible readings of the story, though, and he didn't construct it around a central premise, but just wanted to write a beautiful tale. And full disclosure, the original does have the professor's daughter being more focused on how much richer the Chamberlain's nephew was than the student. I think that the story definitely supports the reading that the student was being unreasonable, creepy, and demanding regarding the woman's love. And I don't think the story is saying that love is bad, just... complicated. And it might not fit so neatly into the romantic ideals that we might hold. <music> the creature this week is the Josung Sacha from Korean folklore. Josung Sacha apparently means afterlife messenger. And he's basically that, a psychopomp that leads people to the afterlife. According to one source, his boss was, quote, the king of hell. But as far as I can tell in Korean folklore, there are actually 10 kings of hell. Not sure if they are all equally the Joesung such as direct report, or if there's a hierarchy among them. Sounds like an office space-esque middle management nightmare, but it's hell, so I guess that's to be expected. It might actually not be hell though, because this is the afterlife messenger, so people can go wherever. Unlike the more western grim reaper, who's just a skinny guy and a snuggie, the Joesung Sacha is pretty sharp. He dresses in a black hanbok, a traditional Korean garment, and wears a wide-brimmed gat, the hat. He has dark eyes, or no eyes, which would be deeply unsettling. Despite looking cooler than most psychopomps, he is all business, just Ice cold, he doesn't talk much, and there's no reasoning with him or bribing him, and if you try to run, he's singularly focused on his work. He will find you. He doesn't kill people though, instead taking people who are already dead or on their way. If someone is sick and things are not looking good, the Josung Sacha will sort of hang out and wait for them to die. If you're listening to this podcast looking for tips on how to cheat death, well, today is actually your lucky day. Because if you're having a very unlucky day and death is coming for you, but you have some time to prepare, you do have options. First, get a dummy. Try to make it look as much like you as possible. It has to be a full-size deal, though. No papier-mâché head sticking out of the covers, like on Escape from Alcatraz. If you do this and convince all your loved ones to huddle around the bed weeping and wailing while you're recovering in the next room over, you might be able to trick the Josun Sacha into taking the dummy. That being said, when he comes back to retrieve you after getting chewed out by his 10 hellish bosses, uh, you might want to watch out for that one. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank
1: you so much for listening,
0: and we'll see you next time.